Well, good morning. If you will, turn with me to the book of Acts. We're starting a new series. Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you're using the Bibles that we provided, that's on 1080. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 1 this morning. Now, this morning, um, and, and particularly, I think, not just this morning, but this past year, or maybe this past few years, there's been a lot of disappointments, haven't there? Uh, I think, but perhaps maybe one of the biggest disappointments, as I've talked to many of you and others, that we've experienced is the disappointment that we're experiencing, that we're feeling as it relates to our government. We often get disappointed with our government, right? It doesn't matter how excited you are, maybe for a new administration to come in and for the old one to leave or vice versa. You're always disappointed. And in some ways, there's a reason for that. We all long for a world in which justice reigns. We all live, kind of long to live in a world where justice never misfires. Where, where there is authority, but that never, no one ever abuses that authority. We always long to, to live in a world in which morality is celebrated. Where we can trust people. Where truth is never eclipsed by fake news. We long to live in a world like that, don't we? And yet the historian within us all knows it doesn't matter what time we live in. We're always and perpetually disappointed with every kingdom that's ever existed. All kingdoms do is just disappoint us. They always just leave us longing. But this morning I want to ask, what if there's a better kingdom? What if there's a better king of a better kingdom? What would it look like? And how would it come? Who would start it? And how do you get into that kingdom? Well, this summer, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. Some have called it the Acts of the Apostles. And what they mean by that is that these are the Acts of the early apostles and the early church. Some have called this the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? You you see these miraculous things in the early church. And so it's the Acts of, of what the Holy Spirit does to kind of birth the church, Now, the apostles and the Holy Spirit are important themes. They are essential themes. But in all honesty, as we're going to see time and time again in this series, the central figure of the book of Acts, the focus, the focal point, is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's the purpose and point of the book of Acts. Now, that's going to seem odd to us, especially when I read chapter 1, because Jesus leaves, right? Jesus kind of exits stage left, or maybe more particularly, right, stage up. And yet, as Jesus ascends, you've got to imagine, just to put yourself into the disciples' shoes, they're, they're wondering, because Jesus talked all about this kingdom that he was bringing. He was the king, he was the, bringing the kingdom, and he's gone, and so they're wondering, Is the movement dead? Did Jesus take the kingdom with him? 
what are they to do now? What's the purpose and mission of those who are following Jesus? The big idea in chapter one that will be behind me is this, and we're going to look at it in two parts. It's a little bit longer of a sentence, but hopefully it'll make sense as we go along. God fulfills his promise to restore his kingdom through the testimony of his people and their dependence on his word. The first thing we're going to look at is that first bit, which is that God is fulfilling his promise to restore his kingdom through the testimony of his people. So so turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 to verse 11, and then we'll stop there. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments throughout through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We'll stop there. So we learn in that first uh, verse that this book is written to Theophilus. And the, the author of the book of Acts is Luke. And Luke wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Personally, I think it's sort of a shame that John is squished in between them because really it's a two-part story about the life and works of Jesus Christ. And so Luke writes to Theophilus to convince him of the truth of Christianity. Luke writes an orderly account, right? Luke's a a historian, and so he did his research. He conducted, uh, you know, testimonies from various people, and so he writes this book around 70 AD. And he writes to convince Theophilus and others like him the truth about Jesus Christ, that Jesus really is who he says he he is, and Jesus really accomplished that which he set out to accomplish. And so he writes this orderly account about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the first book, right? We see that in verse 1. And yet he says, now this is Jesus part two. That's where we get our series title. The Gospel of Acts is Jesus part two. What's Jesus doing once he ascends to the right hand of the Father? And so in verses two through five, Luke basically kind of reviews all that kind of went on in his first account. 
the gospel of Luke. Right? Jesus died. He was resurrected. And people actually interacted with him. Right? There was eyewitness accounts. He was alive. And for 40 days, he ministered to them. He taught them. And look at what he taught. He, he taught, verse 3, about the kingdom of God. Know this, that from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, the, the, the sort of theme of the Bible is all about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is basically this, as one author puts it. It's, uh, it's in a simple form, and I think it's a, in a really helpful form. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So God makes a people for himself. He unites them in a particular time and place, and he rules over them. That's the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, he's teaching his followers all about the kingdom of God. Why? Because they don't understand it, right? Just, just read the gospel of Luke. And time and time again, they're like, his followers, his disciples are like, I get a conquering king, but a conquered king? Like their eyes just kind of gloss over. They're like, what do you mean you're going to suffer, Jesus? What, what do you mean you're going to die? They had sort of no category for that sort of king, and so when Jesus dies and he's raised to life, he has 40 days and he's teaching them, saying, especially, you know, he opens up the Old Testament. And he's like, see, all this was foretold. I had to die. I had to raise to life. I am the king of the kingdom, but the kingdom looks different than you might think it looks like. And so for 40 days, he's explaining all that happened, he's explaining the Old Testament, right? This is the greatest Bible study that has ever happened. Jesus sitting down with the disciples, explaining the gospel was even in the Old Testament. And then verse 4, Jesus commands his followers, hey, don't leave Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Why do they need to stay in Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city of the king. The Davidic throne of the kingdom is clearly established in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem would be the very place in which Jesus would be enthroned and the gift of his enthronement would be poured out. And we see what that gift is in verse 4, isn't it? Jesus is going to be enthroned as king. We're going to see that in a moment. That's, that's the ascension. And the gift of that enthronement, verse 4, is the gift of the Spirit. Remember back in uh, Luke chapter 3, John comes baptizing with water, but then John prophesies that there would be a time soon when God would baptize by the Spirit. Well, that day is, it's coming, isn't it? That day would soon arrive. Now, all of this builds to a natural question that you see in verse 6. The disciples ask this question, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, why do they ask this question? Two reasons. There's two reasons why they ask this question. One, because did you notice in verse 3 and 4, Jesus himself connects kingdom and spirit. And the second reason why 
they ask this question about at this time, at the time of the pouring out of the Spirit, is the, the kingdom going to be restored? They ask it because, well, the apostles, they know their Bibles. In Ezekiel chapter 37, a day is anticipated. And I would commend you this upcoming week to go read all of Ezekiel 37. It's that, you know, valley of dry bones. But if you read all of it, there's all of these amazing promises. And in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, a day is anticipated when the spirit would be poured out on God's people and God's people would come back from exile, be united to God. God would be in their place and he would cleanse them of their sins. You see, in Ezekiel, the pouring out of the spirit is connected with the restoration of the kingdom. And the kingdom needed to be restored. Remember in the Old Testament? The the sort of climax of the kingdom is under two of its most famous kings, David and Solomon. But after Solomon died, the kingdom was splintered, wasn't it? And even after they went into exile and all of the kingdom was gone, even when they came back, the kingdom was still splintered, wasn't it? The kingdom needed to be restored. And yet behind this promise, behind this promise of of giving the spirit, verse 4, is this Ezekiel 37 promise that when the spirit pours out, the kingdom is going to be restored. And so right out of the gate, Jesus is like explaining the kingdom. And he's saying, the kingdom is going to be fulfilled in me. And for 40 days, he's teaching this. That at the pouring out of the spirit, the kingdom is going to come. And so they quite naturally ask, like, okay, so when is this going to happen? Right? They ask the time question. It's, it's the obvious question. Like, we'd all be asking this. Okay, that's amazing. The Spirit's going to be pouring forth, and then the, the kingdom's going to be restored. So, so when is this going to happen? And look, verse 7, how Jesus responds. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus rejects the question, but not all of the question, just a part of the question. He says, you're asking the, the time question. You're asking when That's not the important question. The important question that he's going to answer in verse 8 is, how? How is this kingdom going to be restored? We see that in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, have have you ever thought about that geographical list? First, we've got Jerusalem, the, the, the sacred and religious capital of Israel. Then we've got Judea, the southern kingdom. Then we've got Samaria, the northern kingdom. And then the shocker of shocker, that fourth category. That's, you know, the, the, those three stand for the restored kingdom of Israel. But the shocker is the fourth category. To the ends of the earth. Now, that is the redemptive historical plan. And it's always been the plan. We don't just read of this first in the book of Acts. This has always been the plan. You see, chapter 1, verse 8, is actually quoting three Old Testament texts. All of them in Isaiah. 
And Isaiah chapter 32 um, speaks about the spirit being poured out on God's people. Then Isaiah 43 speaks about um, that, that they're going to be transformed after this, and they're going to be witnesses to God's saving purposes. And then Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we read these words. Sorry, 49, verse 12. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You guys, this has always been the plan. And actually, it's not just the plan. This is the structure of the book of Acts. You want to know how the, how the whole book of Acts works? It works, verse 8. Like, that's the table of contents of the book of Acts. So, so you've got um, the gospel going forth to Jerusalem and Judea. That's chapters 1 to 7. Then Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And then to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 through 28. So what's Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is not just that he's going to reclaim his city, Jerusalem. He's not going to just reclaim the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. He's going to do that, but he's also going to advance the boundaries to the ends of the earth. The kingdom is God's people and God's place under God's rule, which when you think about it, it's a really good description of the church, isn't it? The church is God's people gathered together at a time and place who submit themselves under the reign of Jesus Christ. That is what a church is. Amen? The local church is, well, it's an embassy of the kingdom. You want to know where the kingdom is? The kingdom is in the church where men and women gather together, united to Christ in a particular place and time, under the authority of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. The church is a sort of outpost of the kingdom of God in enemy territories. That's what the church is. Now, that's not just the only shocking thing. Look at how this is going to be accomplished. Verse 8. Through the Spirit, as he gives, through the, through the Spirit, as these people give witness to the king. So they need the spirit for power, and then they're going to give a witness to the king. Which shouldn't shock us because this is modeled after Jesus, right? Jesus was baptized by the spirit, and then what? Then he gave testimony through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so now they model their lives after Jesus, and now the, the same command that was sort of binding on Jesus is binding on them. They need to be baptized with the spirit so that they too can give testimony to the Risen Jesus. And now, having spoken these last words, having sort of given the mission, right, the marching orders, what they're to do, Jesus ascends. He ascends into heaven like Elijah. Like the, the language is eerily similar to Elijah, if you remember in the book of, uh, of Kings, right? Elijah just is carried off in clouds, and so is Jesus. And his followers are just sitting there looking up and you, who could blame him, right? I mean, if you saw someone just ascend into the clouds, I'm telling you, all of us would be looking up. We'd all have like, you know, neck pain because we just wouldn't stop looking up. And so they're looking up, aren't they? And yet, two men in white robes, angelic beings, they appear and they ask a question. It, it, it's, it's a rhetorical question because they never really, at, the disciples never answer it. It's just a rhetorical question. They say, 
what are you doing looking at the sky? Right? Now, I would have said, uh, did Jesus just ascended. That's why I'm looking at the sky. But they say, no, no, no. Stop looking at the sky. You got, you, you got stuff to do. You got your marching orders. You got the purpose. You have a mission. Um, I, I think uh, as it relates to Christianity and the Bible, we talk a lot about Jesus' life, his teachings. We talk a lot about his death and what that means for us. We talk about his resurrection and how that's a vindication of, uh, of all of his life and his death, that, that the Father accepted his death for all those who put their trust and faith in him. But, but when was the last time you thought about the ascension and how important the ascension is to your own Christian life? The disciples must have been really sad. I mean, they weren't just bit, this wasn't just bittersweet. It was just bitter. I mean, the guy that they've walked with, I mean, who, who they saw die and they were mourning down and then he comes back to life. I mean, they're like, this is amazing. He's back. This is, we're having these great Bible studies. They're having this, this little revival with 120 people. This is like their best life now. And now he's gone. And they're thinking, we've got no one. Jesus is gone. Our friend is gone. Our, the, the guy who's invested so much in us is gone. But, but, but the point isn't what Jesus is leaving. The point is where Jesus is going. Jesus is returning to his throne. Jesus is returning to sit at the right hand of his father. He, he, he's going to continue his priestly work on our behalf. I mean, if you want an idea of what Jesus, the ascended Jesus, went to and where he is, read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. That is the throne room of God. Jesus ascends. You've got the throne room, all these creatures worshiping God, and there is Jesus, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's given a scroll of salvation and judgment. He is the conquering king who sits down. And this is why the angels, they're like, he's ascended, he's ruling, he's continuing to minister. It's more better. Okay. I know what I did grammatically there, right? It's better that Jesus left, right? If I give you a forced choice, who do you want? Do you want Jesus with you or not with you? I'm guessing people are like, I think I want Jesus actually present with me. And Jesus goes, no, it's more better that I leave. Because of who he was going to send. And he says, you know, that the angels say, you got a, you got a thing to do. So, so don't worry. As unexpected as Jesus is leaving, the angels say, if you, if you look there, as unexpected as that event is, so unexpected will be his return. So don't worry about it. You got stuff to do. You got work to do. Go back and think about what Jesus spoke to you, those last words. And, and we all know that last words are some of the most important words, right? right? First words and last words. Dying words are important words. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it, it, it means that just like the apostles, just like those early followers of Jesus, we too have, a, have the same mission, have the same purpose. We are not eyewitnesses, right? Well, we weren't there. And as far as I know, there's no time machine that exists for us to go back there 
and actually say, oh yeah, I was there, I, I, I saw, I can actually give witness. But you see, we don't need that, do we? Because we have the apostolic witness. We have the true authoritative witness. And so we too are called to give witness to the risen Christ. So, so let me just make three applications about this mission quickly. What, what this means. First, what this means is we need to know the, the message. Right? We need to know what we are to testify to, to testify about. We need to know who Jesus is, what he's done, and what it all means. This is what Jesus did with his disciples, right? He made sure that their theology was straight in order for them to teach that theology to others, right? And what is that essential message? Well, Christian, non-Christian, this is the essential message of the gospel. And you read it really clearly in Luke's first uh, book at the very, very end. Chapter 24, it says, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the, the dead. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That is the gospel. That Christ died for sinners, rose in vindication, and that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turn away from your sin, turn towards Jesus, you are forgiven and you have access to and citizenship in the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. God sends Jesus to save sinners. Now, this is why every week we, I explain it. This is why every week we sing it. You might say, oh, why? Well, I'm trying to brainwash you, okay? Which is a theological word for I'm trying to catechize you, all right? That that is the essential message of the gospel. So that it just kind of burps out of you when you're having conversations. This is why we gather as a church. To rehearse the gospel. That's what communion is. Communion is a physical display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the bread and the wine. You see, the church isn't just where we're reminded of the message. It's not just where that message gets drilled deep within our souls. It's where we remind ourselves of our identity in this message, our identity in Christ. And it's also where we encourage each other to continue to proclaim that when we leave. Second, this means that this, especially verse 8 by way of application, it also means that we can't deviate from this message, right? Just think about a witness on a witness stand. Are, are they supposed to be creative on the witness stand? No. Are they supposed to exaggerate a little bit to make it a little bit more appealing to the jury? No. The witness has a singular job to testify to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help them God. That's their job. That's their role. Just say, this is what I saw here. This is what actually happened. That's their job. That's our job. Our job is not to make the message relevant. The message is relevant. It's always been relevant. Our job is just to testify to its truthfulness as the Holy Spirit applies the relevance to a person's heart. And then third, third application. We need the same tools or t tool with a capital T that the early church did. 
Right? We, we can't do this alone, right? The apostles, the early church, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit, and so do we. Um, growing up, my twin brother and I, our favorite show was MacGyver. Can I? Okay, I hope this illustration lands. If you don't know what MacGyver is, just tune me out for like five seconds, okay? So MacGyver is this amazing guy. He gets sent on a mission, and in order to accomplish a mission, he needs tools, right? And so he's got a pocket knife, a stick of gum, and he gets like a piece of paper, and he builds an airplane with it, all right? That's the point. It's always amazing, the stuff that he creatively comes up with. But, but, but you see, he, he needs to accomplish the mission, but he uses something in order to accomplish it. Well, the same thing is true with us. We need the Spirit. We need the supernatural work of God himself in order to accomplish this mission. You, you see, you and I, we don't advance the kingdom. We don't bring the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. God does that. That language never comes up in the, the Bible. God does that. Our job is to rely on the spirit to build the kingdom. I think m- many of us, as it relates to our evangelism, feel weak, feel ill-equipped. Good. That's a good place to start. I mean, I- I'm not saying that training isn't important, Right? I think one of, the jo- one of the jobs of the pastor in Ephesians is to equip the saints for works of ministry. Okay? I'm all for that. But think of all the things that the disciples didn't know. I mean, I'm guessing the disciples were the worst apologists ever. They, didn't have a, they were fishermen. I mean, yeah, they knew three languages, which puts all of us to shame, or most of us to shame. But they, they were just common folk. They were weak. And yet it was their very weakness that made them powerful. Why? Because they didn't have to rely on their education or their background or their skills or their personality or their charisma or their technique, right? Bait and switch, right? They, They didn't have any of that. They had was the spirit that was soon to come. God fulfills his purposes to restore his kingdom through the testimony of his people. But second, let's look at this dependence on his word. Let let me read starting in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of, from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons that was about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed, gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldba, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Verse 21, so 
One of the men who had accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being, uh, beginning from the, from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the, his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Verse 12, they go to Jerusalem. They do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They go to Jerusalem and they go to the upper room, which I think, you know, it's, it's upper room proper. That's probably the, the very room that Jesus himself had the last supper. And they all gather together and you notice there in verse 15, there's 120 of them, right? I mean, that's a big house. It's a big room. Look at verse 14, what they do. With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem and they don't wait passively. They wait actively. They wait aggressively. They devote themselves to prayer. They prayed. And and we're going to see this time and time again as we go through the book of Acts. They pray. They pray. The, The mission of the church is fueled by prayers. The prayers of the saints. They knew that they could not accomplish the wind of the Spirit. All they knew they could do is just hoist the sail and just wait for the Spirit to come. That's what they did. They hoisted the sails through their prayers and waited patiently for the Spirit to move. Historically speaking, if you point out any big movement of the Spirit, I will show you historically a prior movement of prayer. Or that's positively, let me put it negatively. Do you want to know the grim reaper of the church? It's not an ism. It's not materialism, consumerism, atheism, right? Take any ism. The grim reaper of the church is prayerlessness. It's the slow march of death. It's spiritual suicide. Jesus himself, quoting actually the Old Testament, said, my house will be called a house of prayer. I know the prayer is uncomfortable. Prayer in any church will never become the coolest ministry in the church, will it? But that's how God in his sovereignty accomplishes his providential purposes through the ministry of prayers. Some of you know the 19th century Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Well, he had a cool church, a a very modern church. And so he'd often give tours of the church and he'd say, let's go look at the boiler room. And he'd take them down there and they think they were going to see like how the heat worked and all that kind of stuff because it was advanced for the time. And yet he'd open the door and there would be dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds of people there just praying. And he said, that's the power of the church. Those men and women. I mean, Spurgeon gets, he was called the prince of preachers. He gets all the, you know, we're still talking about him, but it was those men and women, those nameless men and women that 
were so effective in their prayers that God saw fit to do such amazing things in the life of Spurgeon and that church, all through prayer. And and in many ways, I I don't say that to to guilt us as it relates to prayer, like, oh, we need to pray. It's the duty of a Christian of prayer. I mean, you look there, it's, it's as if they're enjoying prayer. They're expecting God to work. They know that God is going to come through on his promises. They're just waiting. And so they wait and pray for God to move. Uh, When my friend and I planted our church down in Corvallis, we were like in our mid-20s. We didn't know really what we were doing. We were really, really naive. And I remember uh, about a year into it, it had been six months since we'd seen a conversion and baptism. Just stay with me. Six months. And we panicked and thought, we'd seen all these baptisms before. We'd see these conversions. Like, what was going on? And so we panicked that we hadn't seen any conversions. And so we, we, we prayed and fasted for a week. Actually, more than that, we got up and we said, you guys, there's a problem here. We're not, we're not seeing conversions here. We all need to pray and fast. And so our church prayed and fast for an entire Week because we were so discouraged that we hadn't seen a conversion in six months. I wish that I, I man, I, I love that 26 year old Stephen. I won't tell you the end of the story, but the wind of the Spirit moved as we got on our knees, as we confessed, as we cried out to God and begged Him to move. That's what we see. But it's not the only thing that we see. Verse 13, the apostles are listed. You see that? And if you count all the apostles, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Now you should know that's a problem. It's, it's not just a math problem. It's a theological problem. And in verse 16, Peter tells us why it's a theological problem. Right? P- Peter speaks up. He stands up and he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke in the Old Testament beforehand through the mouth of David, right? Concerning Judas. So first what he does is to say, hey, if you think that this is an accident, what Judas did, nope, not an accident at all. David himself wrote about Judas, that Judas would betray him. We read one of those uh, texts earlier. No, no, this, this, the cruelest thing that has ever happened, the, the cruelest crime that's ever been committed was Judas. But, but Peter, mis, he corrects their misunderstanding of the whole situation. And so he said, no, no, no. Um, first, um, it was predicted. Judas was going to do this. It was part of God's providential plan. And then second, he says, and we need to pick someone new. We need to pick someone new. We need a 12. The 12 disciples were down to 11 because of Judas. And maybe you're wondering, like, well, there's 120 of them, so who the heck cares? Like, why do they need 12? They got 120. Sounds like that's, that's, that's a lot of people to witness. Why do they need 12? Well, there's no coincidence why Jesus picked 12. Jesus picked 12, and that wasn't random. The 12 apostles stood for the restored house of Israel, 
Read Luke chapter 22, verse 28 through 30. And it makes this clear. They were the new patriarchs. And there could be no mission until there were 12. So they needed a new apostle. And it's clear in verse 22 that that the apostle needed a, a particular clarification, right? They needed to be with Jesus in his life, in his death, and resurrection. That was the clarifi- like that was the job description, right? They need that on someone's resume. And there's only two dudes, right? So there's two dudes that fit the bill that could be this 12th apostle. And so they cast lots and they choose Matthias. Now, what's going on here? Um, One, um, if you're wondering, this is not how we elect elders at the church, all right? We don't put like people's names in a hat and shake it and go... Lord, no, that's not what's going on here. And uh, the whole idea of casting lots never comes up again in the New Testament. So something unique is going on here. And what's unique is Jesus picked the 12 apostles. And they know, and we see that in verse 2, right? The apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus picked the 12 apostles. And they know, as they're praying and as they're searching the scripture, that they can't pick the the 12th the 12th, right? You see that in the, in, the, in the prayer, don't you? Right? They pray and they say, Lord, you know our hearts. You need to pick the 12th disciple. No, this, this, this isn't normative. They don't have the spirit, remember? That's going to come in chapter 2. They need God to pick the 12th disciple. And they pick Matthias, or God picks Matthias. Now, again, he never shows up again. And so some have wondered, oh, was that an accident? Because Paul comes up later and he has a much more prevalent role in the book of Acts. No, I don't think this is an accident, right? The, the point is not if Matthias would be famous or not. The point is that these 12 men represented the new Israel, the whole redeemed people of God. And so what we see in verses 12 through 26 is God fulfilling his promise to his people as they depend on God's word, as they're on their knees praying, looking at God's word, saying, God says he's going to do this. When the spirit gets poured out, God is going to begin to restore his people. And it's not just going to be a restored people in this little area of Palestine. It's going to go to the entire world. And so in that in-between period, they wait. And waiting is hard, isn't it? Right? I think in, in the course of history, we are the most impatient people ever. We can't wait three seconds before we just quit on our phones, right? If something doesn't load in three seconds, it's a waste of my time. And yet here we have them waiting patiently, actively hoisting the sails in prayer, just waiting for God to act. And the apostles, they they don't wait long, do they? Now, I'm guessing there are many things, many promises even, in God's word that you're waiting on. Well, we're to wait just like the apostles waited. We wait actively. We wait prayerfully. We wait and study the scriptures. That's what they did. All of us get disillusioned from time to time from kingdoms. They all disappoint us. Not this kingdom, right? This spiritual kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ 
as he brings the most unlikely of sinners, as we're going to see time and time again, right? The most unlikely sinners he brings into the kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. That kingdom will never disappoint. And we get a taste of it, even in this church. But we get the real deal when Jesus returns, when he consummates the kingdom. So let me just read this sentence one more time and we will pray. And it's this. God is fulfilling his promise and he is restoring his kingdom. And he does so through the testimony of his people as they depend on his word. Lord, we, we, we are grateful for your son. We are grateful for that he is right now at the right hand of the father at you and he, He's praying for us and he's interceding for us and he's ministering to us. We thank you for that present ministry, Lord. And we long with all the saints. We echo this, the, the prayers of the saints. How long, O oh Lord, we, we do want your son's return and we look forward to that day when your kingdom will be brought in its fullness. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.